Um, let's open up our Bibles. You guys ready? Last year I did a full-on sermon on, like, for mothers and, and, and reflecting on motherhood. Uh, this this time around, we're just going to keep going in Luke's gospel, if that's okay with you guys. Uh, Luke chapter six. If you need a Bible, go ahead, raise your hand. These handsome gentlemen want to get get you one. Um, perfect. Luke chapter 6, we are going to be now for the second week here in verses 37 to 42. Verses 37 to 42. Let me uh, read them. We'll pray and then we will, we will dive in. It says this. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. God, it never feels good (laughs) to be called a hypocrite. Not by our fellow man and especially not when it comes from the mouth of the Son of God. And yet, Lord, if we're honest, um, this text is going to search us. Your words here are going to expose things in us. A judgmentalism that we hide behind. The self-exalting impulse in our flesh. And God, you want to free us from it. You want to set us free from the need to justify ourselves over one another. Because we've been justified by the work of your son. God, I'm praying today. I mean, no, it's it's no more clearer than it could be now than than now that, that we need you to come and open eyes. By nature, there's just a beam. (laughs) There's just a log in our eye. And I'm just praying, God, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, through the word this morning, would you come, reveal it to us, remove it from us, and help us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, 
So this is now the second part to what we began last week, uh, looking at this text. And this morning, we're really going to set our sights on verses 41 to 42, which is that whole, you know, picture of the, the log and the, the speck in your eye and these things perhaps you're familiar with. Uh, these are some tough words, but my prayer, my hope is that by the end, you will see Jesus's intention in this and you will see uh, his grace and his love in approaching us on this subject. Um, we're going to talk about essentially what I said last time, which is the, the, the disciples ministry. That's how I kind of uh, summarize these two verses, because really what we see in this text at large is that Jesus kind of has great plans for us. He wants to uh, use us in his kingdom. He wants us to be ministers of uh, truth and love to one another. And so last time I talked about how he gives us his father's genetics. And, and then we talked about how he uh, gives us his training in discipleship. And so now this morning we come out to this idea that man, he wants us to be ministers. He wants us to know how to, to, how to take the speck out of one another's eye in a loving, humble, kind way. In a way that's helpful, not harmful. He wants us to be ministers of his truth and love. But in these two verses, verses 41 to 42, uh, he identifies essentially one major hurdle to this goal. <laughs> one major hurdle, and he's going to face it with us head on here this morning. Now, to set up um, this discussion, I want to go back to verse 37 for a moment and just make a quick comment there, um, lest there be any confusion. I there at the very beginning of verse 37, Jesus says this, and I would almost guarantee you've had this quoted to you. <laughs> Judge not. Judge not, he says. Now, apart from uh, John 3.16, my guess is that this is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. One of the probably most quoted verses in the Bible, but it's also probably one of the most misunderstood, misapplied, misquoted. In our postmodern culture, in this culture and age where tolerance is kind of crowned as king and truth is relative, uh, what will often happen when Christians come with the truth to others in a loving way, wanting to share the gospel, wanting to share about God, whatever it may be. Oftentimes, what we will get back at us is this verse. Hey, listen, Christian. Who are you to judge me and tell me what's right or wrong? What do you think you have the monopoly on, on the truth here? Who do you think you are? You're just a human being just like me. Even Jesus himself says, judge not. Let me go on my merry way. Thank you very much. Stop being so arrogant. Telling me you know right from wrong and what I need. Have you ever been quoted that verse before? I have. Well, due to the rising volume of this kind of chorus in our culture, we 
as Christians often kind of have this deep unsettling on the issue. We, we, we often kind of get insecure about it and wonder, well, are they right? Am I being arrogant? We start searching our heart. Wait, maybe I am. Maybe I do think I'm, I'm something better. Maybe that is what, what Jesus means here when he says, judge not. I mean, he does say it. But what does he mean? What does he actually mean? Now, there were a number of things I could have taken us to uh, to show you what he means here. But perhaps the most simplest is just to keep us right in the context. Uh, I think right within the immediate context of our text, it is clear that Jesus is not categorically condemning all forms of judgment. All forms of judging other people. And here is how I know this. The goal of his whole discussion in this section of of, uh, his sermon is given in verse 42. And what is that goal? What is the goal if you look at it? He says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So in other words... He's saying that, man, the goal of this discussion is not so that you no longer see sin in anybody else but yourself. And that you're no longer addressing or, or, or discussing the error or sin in other people. That's not the goal. He says the goal is that you would actually now know how to do that in a way that's not harmful, but a way that's helpful. I actually want to help you judge others, but with right and true and honest and humble judgment in a way that's loving instead of condemning. So it's not as if we stop seeing and addressing error or sin in one another, but it is that now, if and when we see and address such things, we do so in a radically different way. So the judgment of verse 37 that he is speaking against is the judgment that is condemning and arrogant and destructive of another person. Like we kind of talked about last week. But then the judgment that he's trying to take us to in verse 42 is humble. It's, it's, it's charitable. It's kind. And it's reparative. It's restorative. It builds up others instead of tears them down he's going to try to help us make the move from verse 37 to verse 42 by bringing up some stuff that's hard to face about ourselves in verses 41 and 42 and that's kind of what we got to deal with as we make our way towards this humble loving handling of one another's sin and and this ministry that we're called to and caring for one another And I want to help our church grow in this as well. So we're going to follow his words here through two headings, essentially. Um, I would sum it up like this. The first is uh, deals with the heights of our hypocrisy. And that's verses 41 to 42a, the first part of 42. And then we will get to, uh, secondly, the depths of our humility. And that's uh, the second part of verse 42 there. So let's move into the heights of our hypocrisy here for a moment. And already it doesn't sound so fun, but I trust that uh, God will bring his light and he will not only expose, but he will heal in this room. 
the heights of our hypocrisy. When we look at um, verses 41 to 42a, the first thing I think we notice, at least we should notice, is the utter absurdity of the whole scene that Jesus is painting. We notice the, the utter absurdity of this picture that he is given. So there is a guy there that has a speck in his eye. Now, in the Greek, it's just it's, it's like a wood chip, a splinter, something like that is the idea. This, this little piece is in his eye. And we know that that's never fun. I mean, you know, maybe he was out doing yard work or so. I'm not sure. That's what it was like for me in Phoenix. I'd be out there in the dust and the dirt, stuff would get in your eyes. And, and it, 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 it's not fun. Even a little thing can kind of ruin your day for an hour because your eyes just keep watering until you get it out. But this guy has this speck or chip, whatever it is, in his eye. And along comes this other dude. And he is more than ready, more than willing to help. Clearly sees the speck in that guy's eye, takes it upon himself to, uh, to operate, so to speak. Except there's one massive problem where the first guy has speck in his eye this second guy now has a log in his own and the word there is essentially this this big <laughs> it's it, it, it uh is the word that's used for the the timbers the big logs uh that would hold the the weight in the roofs built around palestine so this is a massive log here in this brother's eye and he's coming in saying let me help you with the little wood chip I got this. Let me just get my hands on your eye and it's going to be good. And the image, essentially, Jesus is kind of trying to say, man, before that guy can even get to his friend's, the little speck in his friend's eye, he's probably going to knock him unconscious by the big massive thing that's protruding from his face. That's the sort of thing that Jesus is getting at here, that this guy thinks he's, he's God's gift to this individual and he's really just going to hurt and bring more pain. And so like some of you are even doing here, I imagine some of his disciples were out there just kind of chuckling and laughing and thinking, oh, this is, this is kind of funny. And then suddenly the image becomes convicting. And Jesus has this amazing kind of one-two thing where he just kind of gets you in and then he flips it on you and you go, wait a minute, he's talking about me. Oh no, I am the ridiculous one. I am the absurd one. This sort of thing is in my heart. And he's coming after it in love. The force of Jesus's point, I think, comes at us in the interrogatives that he uses here. The question words that are just left hanging in the air to haunt us. That's what I'm going to kind of track down uh, through a good portion of this sermon. I want to answer, try to answer his questions here that he asks, namely, why and how? Let me read them to you here again. Verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Why is that so? And then verse 42. How? Can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Why and how are the major questions that are left to haunt us? Why are we so absurd? How is such a thing true even of us so often? What's gone wrong here? 
So with these two questions, Jesus puts his fingers essentially upon a very uncomfortable reality in us. And he's calling us to face what what I might call our our tendency towards self-deception. Our tendency towards self-deception. In other words, there's something in me that distorts the way I see me. And consequently, it also distorts the way I see God, the way I see you, the way I see life in general. Something, to put it again another way, is wrong with my eyes. Anybody got to go get their eyes checked? Jesus is saying, listen, disciples, we got to go get our eyes checked. We got to go get our eyes checked. Why and how is this happening? When once we consider it, uh, we realize straight away, I think, that this is actually quite an ancient problem. This vision issue is actually quite an ancient problem. It really begins with the, f- with the pointing fingers in Eden. Uh, you remember when God comes to Adam and Eve after they had taken of the fruit. And what's Adam's defense in this moment? God, you're right. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I am sorry. No. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me to eat. It's her deal, not me. You got the wrong guy, God. There's a beam in my eye. I don't see it. I see the speck over there. And Eve's response is no better. She picks perhaps a better object to put her blame on. The serpent. He did it. It wasn't me. He tricked me. Why'd you let him in the garden, God? I see the speck in everyone else's eye. I don't see the beam in my own. They don't want to own up to their part in the mess. And that sort of thing settles in to human nature at this point and just carries on forward. I could give you, quite honestly, tens and perhaps hundreds of examples from the scriptures, but I'll just give you one. It's, it's one that I think is perhaps the most profound on this point that we are investigating. Um, it's the one where, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, David, uh, king of Israel, is confronted by the prophet Nathan. Let me just rehash the story for you for a moment before I get you into 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7, because I want you to see this. So we probably are familiar with, I mean, even secular songs have have been written about this sort of scene. But David, you know, king of Israel, lusts after Bathsheba. And then he commits adultery with her. And then he gets her pregnant. And then he goes, oh, shoot, if if, if her husband finds out, it's not going to look good for me. So I better arrange for her husband's death as well. That way no one will ever know. And somehow or other, you guys, how this took place, I don't know. It just shows you the kind of twisted nature that's that's inside of us. Somehow it seems that this man after God's own heart was able to justify these actions in his own mind to such a degree that he no longer thought or was even aware that it was wrong. 
Or at least he had somehow so numbed his conscience that he, he, he stopped kind of laying awake at night worrying about it. Just kind of went on with life. And God, because he loves David, will not let such a thing remain in his heart. He sends Nathan the prophet to him. And this is what I want to pick up here in verse 1 of Second Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city. This is Nathan talking to David. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children I mean, Nathan's just milking this example. I'm already feeling sad. Look at this cute little lamb. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. This guy loved his lamb. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. And prepared it for the man who had come to him. Let me just stop there for a moment. Make sure you understand. So there's this one poor man who has a little lamb. Raising it up with his family. Then there's this rich man who has everything. And some guest came in. And one of the hospitable things to do in that day. Was to make sure you provided a meal or whatever. And this rich man says. I don't want to kill one of my own flock. So he looks over and he says. Oh, there's a poor man over there with just that one little lamb. Well, that one little lamb looks great. Mighty tasty. Let's kill him. Put him on the table for my guest. Thank you very much. Now, David's hearing this story from Nathan. And this is David's response in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Another one, two, man, another, another bait and switch. It's incredible. David is just undone by these words. But we have to notice there are so many insights uh, when we take consideration of Nathan's methods here. Because he doesn't go straight at David. You see, God knows the nature of the flesh is self-defense and to avoid and bob and weave and get out of the way and blame somebody else. We don't want to look in and see what's wrong with us or admit it. And so Nathan comes and says, hypothetically speaking, gives him a different story to look at. And when it's not David on the line, when it's not David who's being judged, he can see so clearly I mean, crystal clear, 2020 vision. There's the speck. Man, that guy was unjust. Man, he needs to be punished. How could somebody do such a thing? And righteous anger rising in him. And he has no idea that he's condemning himself in the process. Until Nathan flips it on him. You're the rich man who has everything. 
that was the only bride, the only real tr- treasure that, that uh, I can't even remember his name, was Uriah had, you know, and you just take him. You have the whole kingdom, and you just take him because you want him. You're the man. Wow. Here's the main point that we need to see. What David immediately sees so clearly in the man of the story, he had not seen in himself until this very moment. There's a big old beam in his eye. How in the world is that the case? What in the world is that? Why and how? To use Jesus' questions. Is that going on? Now, Jesus knows that that same sort of self-deception will find its way even into the church. Sadly, and that's why he brings this up as he's training his disciples and talking to them about their ministry. He knows that we're going to do this. And if you know anything about the New Testament and the epistles, I mean, I could have taken you to thousands of places where Paul is addressing this in the church and Peter's addressing this in the church. What are you guys doing? Why knowledge puffs up and you're beating everybody down with and you think you're great. (laughs) So it is. It's going to be in the church, the backbiting and the judging. And here's what starts to happen. We, we see the error and sin in everyone else but ourselves. And we start kind of beating each other over the head with Bible verses. And I think I said it last week, kind of giving each other black eyes in the name of Jesus as these beams are protruding from our faces. And we're trying to help. We're thinking we're helping and we're hurting. We're hurting one another because we don't see rightly. Now, in the church, when it comes to seeing and addressing error and sin in one another, there are, are really two main motives that we like to claim. When we're kind of operating in this mode that Jesus is talking to here, there's, there's kind of two main motives that we like to kind of hide underneath. And uh, I'm going to identify those for us and then let uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, just kind of, he's now passed away, but a British preacher, uh, kind of address us on them just for a moment. The first motive we like to claim is, hey, I'm just concerned for truth. I'm just concerned for truth here. I mean, the reason why, I, I know it's annoying, but the reason why I feel like I got to bring this up about your doctrine, I got to bring this up about what you said at that Bible study, I got to bring this up about that little side point in your sermon, or I got to bring this up about what I just saw on your Facebook feed, or whatever it is, is because I'm just concerned about truth here. I mean, I got to stand for this, even if no one stands with me. And then listen to Lloyd-Jones on this matter. We like to persuade ourselves that we are really concerned about truth and righteousness. And that that is our only interest. We claim that we don't want to be unfair to people, that we don't want to criticize, but that we're really just concerned about truth. But ah, says our Lord, in effect, in this text, if you were really concerned about truth, you would be judging yourself. 
But you do not judge yourself. Therefore, your interest is not really in truth. In other words, he's saying, and Jesus is kind of saying, man, if what we're doing, and we have to search our hearts now, if we are holding everyone else to this higher standard, and we're saying, man, look at that, and look at that, and look at that, and we could not fall, we could not stand under the weight of that sort of scrutiny if they were to turn it around on us. We have to ask ourselves, am I really in it for truth after all? Because if I was, I would be just, in fact, more so, I would lead the way in judging my own self. How am I doing? Where am I at? But instead, he's saying, man, we we turn it out on others and we kind of hide from ourselves. And and, and Lloyd-Jones is saying, well, then are you really after truth in the end? Or is there something else going on? The second motive that we like to claim, so the first being I'm just concerned for truth. The second motive we like to claim is I'm just concerned for love. Have you used this one? In other words, I'm sorry. You know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. But I just feel like I got to bring it up. I got to point out the ways that you're failing right now. I got to point out. I saw what you, how you just talked to your kid. I, I just feel like I need to say that. I need to let you know. I saw, you know, what you were doing over there and what you're doing over there. I saw it. So I, 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 I love you so much. I just feel like I need to point out every one of your failures. <laughs> but again, here's Lloyd-Jones on this issue. The fact is, we're not really concerned about helping this other person. We're interested only in condemning him. We pretend to have this great interest. We pretend that we are very distressed at finding this blemish. But in reality, and this is the horrible part, we are really glad to discover it. Did you hear that? There can sometimes be in us, and sin me, you know, especially, here's what I'll, this is just free, I'll just toss this in there. Sometimes we, I think we hide uh, our, 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 our deepest insecurities behind our harshest judgments. So what I find sometimes is, oh, say, so say I'm insecure about uh, the church or my ministry. Well, okay, you know, listen to me. Sometimes what happens is, oh, I see a pastor that fell or I see some ministry that's struggling. You want to know what kind of rides up in the flesh of my, of my fallen nature? Oh, yeah, I'm standing. You know, oh, poor guy, I better put that on my blog. Look at this guy over here. It's, you know, it's too bad. Or, oh, I better step in and try to restore him because I've never fallen like that. You see how we, there's this kind of thing that happens in us where because we're insecure, because we know we're not all that we ought to be, we kind of judge other people and, and we kind of take this strange, sick delight in it. We might claim, hey, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm just doing this. But really, we kind of get off on it. There's something about it that serves us and what Lloyd Jones and what I'm saying here is man well then therefore are we really in it for love or is there something underneath it something else we're after in these judgments now let me be clear I'm just going harsh here for a moment because Jesus goes harsh um, 
But let me be clear. I do not think that that is the only story in this church at all. At all. I see so many of you guys genuinely concerned for truth and love and handling it with humility and wisdom and caring for one another well. But what Jesus is saying and what I am saying is that, man, there, uh, however long you've been a Christian, whoever you are, whether you're the pastor or not, <laughs> you will find in your flesh an undertow pulling you towards this sort of thing. So that as you go to share truth or, or, or in love, kind of, uh, you know, uh, address something with your brother or sister, this sort of thing will be right there. You need to fight against it. We need to kick against the current, against the undertow. But before we get into just how we kick against it, um, I realize that I have still yet to really do what I initially set out to do. And that is to answer Jesus's initial question. Why and how? Why and how is this the case that we have these beams in our eyes and we don't even notice it. And yet we see so clearly everything and everybody else. Why is that so? I'm going to call on biblical counselor uh, David Pallison to help us on this point. Uh, he sets up the issue this way, and I think this is really interesting, you guys. Um, well, let me read it to you. He says this. Interestingly, modern secular thought has spent a lot of time probing our resistance to knowing ourselves accurately. Tracing such resistance became a staple of serious thought about human nature in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Jung, Adler all agreed that people resist looking in the mirror. But they could never agree on what we were avoiding. So this isn't even just a Christian thing. This isn't like just Jesus has this incredible insight here that nobody else does. Everyone, all these secular psychologists and counselors are going, man, what is it with human beings that we're always hiding and evading? And in one sense, we can't get enough of looking at ourselves in the mirror and our vainglory. And in another sense, we don't want to look too closely lest we see something. But what is it? What is it that causes us to hide? What is it that causes us to deceive ourselves? They could see the issue, but they couldn't answer the question. So they just spun off theory after theory after theory. Well, David Pallison provides the answer to this question, really the Bible's answer to this question, by quoting from the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs. And I have this on your handout. I tried to even paraphrase it because his language was a little bit old. And there's a last line, I think I bolded it on your handout, that is the most important. It says this. It would be an easy thing to be a Christian if religion stood only in a few outward works and duties. But to take the soul to task and to deal thoroughly with our own hearts and to let conscience have its full work, and to bring the soul into spiritual subjection unto God, this is not so easy a matter. Because the soul, out of self-love, is reluctant to enter into itself, lest it should have other thoughts of itself than it desires to have. 
We'll read that last part one more time. Because the soul, here's the, here's the answer to Jesus' question. Because the soul out of self-love is reluctant to enter into itself, lest it should have other thoughts of itself than it desires to have. To put it in layman's terms for you, because I love me so much, I don't want to look in the mirror too intently. Because I know if God opens my eyes to what's actually there, I won't like what I see. It won't be good. It's like the lights will come on and I'll see roaches scattering in the corners of my heart. And I'll realize, man, I'm not in control. I'm not put together. I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I'm shot through with sin and false motives. I'm not healthy. I'm a broken sinner in need of a savior, just like everyone else. And we just feel our ego deflate and we come down to level ground with the rest of humanity. And that we just don't want. I don't want to see it. So here's what happens. We, we kind of hide ourselves from God. The fig leaf effect, so to speak. We hide. I don't want to see the light. I don't want to let the light in and that I see myself. So we hide from God and then we focus in on other people. We focus in on the sins of others because we think, man, if I could just situate myself a little higher than them, I won't feel so bad about me. That's why I say behind our harshest judgments, we hide our deepest insecurities. We know we're not right. We know we're broken, but we don't want to admit it. So we kind of exalt ourselves over others in that sort of verse 37 kind of judgment that critiques and condemns because we need to uphold ourselves, justify ourselves as we condemn them. And this is why Jesus comes out from this whole discussion with the troubling charge. You hypocrites. Verse 42. It's a word in the Greek that referred to wearing a theatrical mask. I got a mask on. Oh, I'm righteous, so I'm good. And Jesus is saying, man, you're acting and you know it. Now, <laughs> that was a lot on judgment. I'm sorry. Let's get to grace. The depths of our humility now. Verse 42b. Here's the question I want to ask. What in the world are we to do with this? What in the world are we supposed to do now? So assuming that light is coming in through the scriptures into our own hearts and we see this sort of thing going on, what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us kind of in verse 42, the second part. First, take the log out of your own eye. And I say, Jesus, what does that mean? Take the log out of my own eye that I know we need to do it. How do we do it? What do we do? What does that look like? Let me address first before I get to what I think it looks like. Let me address what it's not. Because I fear that this is what we often might take that to mean. We might hear that and think, okay, okay. 
I see the issue in my own heart. I know my eyes need correcting. All right. All right. So take the log out of my eye must mean deal with all the sin in my own life. And then finally, when I've dealt with all of it, I can start to talk to another person about what's going on with them. In other words, I got to get perfect before I can deal or talk about or address the imperfections in in anyone else. And that just is simply not the case. That's not what Jesus is saying here. If we wait for that day, we will never speak and we will never be able. I would never be here. There'd be job openings in every church across the world because no pastor could stand up to that if that's what he means. It's a bit ironic, actually, but I think what Jesus is getting at here is quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Taking the log out of your eye doesn't mean getting perfect. It means finally admitting that you aren't. Did you hear that? Taking the log out of your eye doesn't mean getting perfect. It means finally admitting that you aren't. I think that's what Jesus means when he says to the Pharisees in John 9:41, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you were able, if you were willing to say, man, I don't see, man, there's a beam in my eye, man, I need help. You're starting to see. But as long as you say, man, I see fine, Jesus, get off my back. What's your deal? I've got it. 2020, look at me go. You're as blind as a bat and your guilt remains. The best way I know to get us to such a place of humble sight, blind sight, you might say, I'm blind. And you see, is to let the cross of Christ have its full way with us. This is where we're going to close. The cross of Christ essentially declares two all important truths at one and the same time. I'm going to put this in the fashion of of Tim Keller, essentially. But on the one hand, the cross says that I am far more sinful and depraved than I ever dared fear. Like it's worse than I could even imagine. That's why Jesus had to die. The son had to die like that because it's go. The sin thing goes deeper than I even feared in me. But on the other hand, on the other hand, it says that I am far more loved and accepted than I ever dared dream. Because Jesus didn't just have to die. He chose to die for me. I just want to camp out on each side of this with you for a moment. We might call one side the shadow of the cross, the other side the light of the cross, however you want to look at it. But I want to sit there with you here as we close. And I want you to see how this is the way we remove the log and start to see in a way that allows us to help others. So 
let's let the cross have its full effect here for a moment. On the one hand, there really is, I don't think, any bigger blow that God could give to our ego than the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't like to admit this, but it's the truth. Because here's the fact of the matter. Jesus was what? The only beloved son of God, begotten from all eternity with the father. The apple of his eye. Everything he does pleases his father. And yet, and yet, and yet, when my, who I am, who Nick Weber is, is imputed to him on that cross. The father's delight in the son turns to absolute rage. And we can't miss, we cannot miss the, 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 the implications of this. Of the, 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 the blood and, the, and the, the thorns and the nails and the, and the agony and the screaming and the wrath and the hell that's literally poured out on him in those moments. We cannot just kind of bob and weave and squirm away from the reality that he's saying, man, when this is what God says I deserve. For who I am and what I've done. That's how broken, that's how depraved Nick Weber is. So that when I am put on the sun, that's what happens to him. We cannot squirm away from that as uncomfortable as it makes us. Because that is how we start to get the beam out. Whoa. Oh my gosh, I'm lower than I ever thought. The father loves his son, delights in his son. Nick Weber gets put on his son, who I am, gets joined up with his son, crushes his son. I'm so depraved that the son had to die if I were to be redeemed. But, but, on the other hand, there really is no greater expression of love for sinful man than the cross of Jesus Christ. God cannot give us any greater expression of both how bad we are and how loved and accepted we are at one and the same time. Because the fact of the matter is, though I deserve the fires of hell at the cross, he opens to me the gates of heaven. That because of what Jesus does there, Man, Nick Weber becomes the apple of the father's eye. The text in Zephaniah is true for us who are in Christ. He rejoices over us with loud singing. Like he delights in me. He wants to be with me. He wants to get us with him where he is. So man, I am humbled to the ground. I'm below And yet I am raised up to the heavens with him at one and the same time. That's what the cross does when it has the full way with us. I mean, we are humble and broken, but we're not depressed or despairing. We know that God is not through with us. You see how this starts to change the way that we see ourselves. First and foremost, Jesus says, take the log out of our own eyes. So this changes the way we see ourselves. Because we no longer have to hide. Those insecurities, we don't have to be scared of them. We can, we can, we can name them. We can own them. Because maybe we stand in the light of the cross. We say, yeah, man, it goes deeper than you know, brother. 
But you know what? God's not done with me. I'm so loved. I'm so accepted. He's only just begun the work. He will not finish, or I'm sorry, he will not, uh, he will not stop until it's finished. So we can take off the mask. We can look into the mirror. We can let God speak to us about our hearts without fear of condemnation, without having to run. We say, I'm broken. I need help. And Jesus is awesome. But it also, when the cross has had its full way with us, it changes the way we approach others. It changes the way that we approach others. I no longer have to condemn myself or condemn you to justify myself. I'm justified in Jesus. Now I can start to actually see other people as people, not just props for my ego. Like people that I got to kind of get up and over so that I can feel better about my little self. No, now I see people as people, people that I can come and actually serve and get under and care and lovingly address things, but in a humble, broken hearted way, walking with them to the same cross that saves me. It's a phrase I would love, I would love this to just catch in this church, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Meaning there is no hierarchy. It is not like at the end of the Olympic Games when one guy is standing here with the bronze and another guy is standing here with the gold and one guy is you know, halfway with the silver. No, the, the cross levels us all. Or it's, it's, it's this flat ground there, no one better than the other, all in need of the blood he so freely gave. To redeem. So we go with one another there. I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is is your sin bad? Oh, yeah, worse than you know. (laughs) Worse than you even see right now. That's why we need one another to help with specs. We're not going to see it. But man, the cross conditions the way we approach. Because we go, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad sometimes. It's bad in me too. But you know what? Man, Jesus is not done. There's so much hope for the child of God. He's just getting started. So when we remove the beam in our eye by way of the cross, we stop hurting one another and actually start helping. Now we can start ministering in truth and love. Because we've just been simultaneously broken and built up, humbled and exalted. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, your word to us. Thank you that you are the great physician, that you are not scared to go into the deep places of our hearts, even though we resist and we push back. Because, God, you know what you're trying to accomplish. And it's not to condemn. It's not to destroy. It's to heal and repair. Lord, I pray that if there is humbling of ourselves that needs to be done in this room, if there's repentance that needs to be done, that we would do it all in the light of the cross, aware, yeah, the sin goes deeper than we even know. But your love extends higher than we can even conceive. Thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.